gosh of word. You, you want to know who, who I have a hard time not hating? <laughs> People who mistreat or hurt my kids. All you parents out there thinking, yeah, I can get on board with that. Now, I've only been a parent for a little bit over three years. Um, I have a three-year-old daughter named Logan. I have a 19-month-old son named Malachi. And it's not like anything terrible has really ever happened to my kids, but it's, it's those moments where maybe another parent kind of gives my kid a really dirty look because they feel like my kid's just too rambunctious and too wound up, and I'm looking back at their kid like, I can't help your kid so stinking lethargic. Give him a Red Bull or something, right? <laughs> or, or parents, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about here. Um, how about when, when your child is taken advantage of or mistreated by one of their peers, by one of their friends? Whew, that'll get you mad, right? Like, you know, my little daughter will be peacefully playing with a toy and another kid will come over and rip it out of her arms and run to the other side of the room. And I'm like, I might have to go abuse a child. <laughs> right? It's, it's a strange feeling wishing such ill will upon like a three-year-old. And, and here's the thing about that. There is no point in trying to make peace with me if you mistreat one of my children. I mean, you can buy me gifts, you can give me money, you, you, you can sing me songs, shoot, you can praise my holy name, but it will all fall short. There is nothing that you can do to compensate for mistreating or hurting one of my kids. Now, ironically enough, the opposite holds just as true. The best thing that you could do for me would be to do something for one of my kids. The most honoring thing that you could do for me doesn't actually have anything to do with me. The most honoring thing that you could do for me would be to do something for one of my children. In the back every week, there's a guy that sits back there by the name of Graham. Graham, I think he's probably back there. Everybody wave at Graham real quick. Oh, he's not there. He's a ghost, but he's normally back there. He's somewhere. Um, he didn't know I was going to do this. Uh, Graham is, uh, he leads our, our setup crew. Graham's actually our operations director. We call him our master of portability. He's the reason that we have all this stuff here every Sunday morning. In fact, I was joking around with a couple last week and saying like, hey, if you call this place your church home, I feel like every single person should have to serve at some point on our setup and teardown team. And you'll see like all the hard work that goes into this week after week after week. But nonetheless, uh, Graham, every single Sunday, usually about 8.30, 9 o'clock when things have just about set up, you know, they get here at like 6.30 in the morning. And so most of the things are set up at that point, he either himself or he will send somebody out uh, to go pick up a 10-pack of Timbits. And if you don't know what a Timbit is, they are like these little balls of glory uh, named, uh, but made by a place called Tim Hortons. And uh, Timbits are to die for, especially they make a flavor called birthday cake Timbits. And I'm telling you, if you have not had a birthday cake Timbit, you need to stop what you're doing after church and go get yourself one of those things. Now, every week, he goes out and either he himself or he sends somebody out for him and he buys this 10 pack of Timbits with his hard earned money. He spends his own money. Now you might think, okay, well there's nothing too noble of that. Uh, the reason that he gets this 10 pack of Timbits actually doesn't really have anything to do with him. The reason he gets this pack, 10 pack of Timbits each and every week is because he knows between like 9.30 and 10 o'clock, income running through those auditorium doors is gonna be my daughter, Logan. And she first comes up to me, I'm still getting first place, that's good. She, she runs up to me and she gives me a hug and she tells me good morning and then inevitably she starts getting a little squirmy and she starts looking back towards the tech booth and she wants to go back and visit Graham because she knows that every single week Graham is gonna have a couple of Timbits waiting for her. And he picks her up and he puts her on his lap and he talks to her while she has a mouthful of donut, can't understand a word she's saying. And he tells her how much he loves her and he hugs her and he gives her kisses and every single week I watch this go down and I go, oh, I love that guy. 
Now, there's a lot of reasons I love Graham. I love him because he's one of my friends. We have a ton in common. I love him because he was literally the first guy to join this team of people to start this church before it even had a name. He was like, hey, I will go with you wherever you end up going. I love Graham for a lot of reasons, but I'm telling you more than any other reason, I love Graham because of how well he treats my little girl. As I was preparing for this and thinking about this, I kind of thought, you know, if Graham ever does anything stupid that warrants him getting fired, he's going to make it really, really difficult for me to do so because, again, he treats my daughter so well. Maybe that's what he's up to. Anyway, (laughs) we are in uh, part four of a five-part series this morning that we are calling Brand New. And if you have missed any of the first three parts of this series, I can't encourage you enough to go to grumlaw.com slash messages and get yourself caught up there or find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcast because we're just going to kind of be picking up and going here this morning. But I'm telling you, it's really, really important that you understand the context of what we're talking about because there's a lot of things that we're talking about in this series that are going to sound really absurd. And they will sound even more absurd if you have no context, if you haven't listened to the first couple parts of this series. So make sure, again, you're going there and you're catching yourself up. But just in case this is your first week and you haven't been tracking with us for this entire series, the premise for the series is really, really simple. The arrival of Jesus signaled the end, as in it is, it is done, as in we are moving on we are done with that. The end of the temple model. And we'll explain what the temple model means here in just a second. And the beginning of something entirely new, the beginning of something brand new, and hence the name of this series. But the problem is that our consciences, as we talked about last week, have been shaped by a version of Christianity that has went ahead and blended this old model, this model that should have been done with, this model that we should have moved on from, and blended and mixed it and matched it with the new that Jesus introduced in the world. But Jesus came along and said, we are done with that. We're done with the temple model. This isn't the continuation of anything. This isn't temple model 2.0. We are on to something entirely new. See, the temple model, when we say this phrase, the temple model, the temple model represents all ancient religions. So we're talking about you know, ancient Babylon, the Persian Empire, ancient Israel, ancient Egypt. But ironically enough, it also represents most of the religions that exist in our world today. Now, whether we're talking about the ancient world or we're talking about present day, the temple model always has these four components. There's always sacred places, sacred texts, sacred men. It is always 100% of the time men and sincere, sometimes superstitious, sometimes scared. We could probably use some other S words, but we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Sincere followers. There's always some sacred building that is seemingly more valuable than the people that enter it, that then houses some sacred texts. Now, those sacred texts might be a stone with something etched onto them. might be these little tiny fragments of paper. It might be this big leather-bound book that's literally chained to the altar. But those sacred texts are then controlled by the sacred men. Again, it's always men. And then those sacred men communicate to the sincere, superstitious, scared followers, hey, this is how you better live your life. And if you don't live your life according to how we tell you that you should be living your life, because we're telling you it's coming from the sacred text, you might find yourself outside of the good graces of the God that we are gathering here to worship. But the problem is, and as we've been really driving home throughout the series, the problem is Jesus came to bring about something entirely new. As we talked about last week, and Jason did a brilliant job kind of giving us a quick history lesson here on the early Christian church. At about the fourth century, this movement that we now refer to as Christianity, back then it would have been referred to as the way, it actually became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. Now, now, now that's worth noting. Those of you that are skeptical of this whole Christianity thing, that in and of itself is one of those details that you have to stop and pay attention to. Christianity became the state religion of the most powerful empire in the ancient world. And when that happened, something tragic occurred. 
There began this temple model approach to Christianity. Jesus got sprinkled on top of the temple model. And now, unfortunately, that's what we have in many parts of our world today with the Christian church, including right here in our communities. But I'm telling you, this was not supposed to be the case. This is not the new that Jesus had brought about. In the brand new that Jesus brought into the world, there would be a new covenant. And this would be a new covenant between all people, not just the Israelites, not just for the Jewish community, but literally for the entire world, including me, including you. There would be a new command that would replace all the other commands. No longer would you have to follow the 613 laws that would have been contained within the Torah, within the Jewish scriptures. In fact, you don't even have to follow the 10 commandments anymore. Some of you don't like us saying that. But Jesus came along and he, he replaced all of that with a single verb, with a single command. And that in turn would, would filter down to this new ethic that should trickle down into literally every part of our lives. And in turn, that would launch this brand new movement. But the problem is that by blending by mixing and matching the old with the new. We weren't left with 50-50. We weren't left with like 50% temple model and 50% Jesus. We were left with like 99% temple model and 1% Jesus. And we end up with a version of Christianity that is holding us back. Not only as individuals, but for the larger church as a whole. For example, and we talked about some of these examples last week. For example, if you wonder how close you can get to sin without actually sinning, that is temple model thinking. Because here's what we're actually thinking in those moments. You would never admit this out loud, but I'll admit it for us. We're thinking in our minds in these moments, well, I want to sin. I want to do the thing that I know is not what is best for me. I want to do that thing that I'm pretty sure is going to lead to regret. But I don't want to do it if it's going to leave with like, I don't know, kind of messing things up between me and God. How close can I get to that invisible line until God grabs me by the shoulders and says, okay, it's time to step back. Another example that we talked about last week, if you've ever felt guiltier about missing church or missing mass than you have about mistreating another person, that is temple model thinking. I think maybe the biggest example of temple model thinking, if you have ever thought that a religious act is somehow going to get you a right standing with God, is going to make things right with God, that is temple thinking. If you've ever thought that sprinkling some water on your baby's forehead or you being dunked under the water by a pastor or priest is somehow going to lock down your spot in heaven, that is temple model thinking. If you've ever went to confession, whether that's the Catholic version of that or the Baptist version of that or the Lutheran version of that, and they told you, okay, well, now you got to say this prayer 10 times this way. you got to say this prayer. Okay, just use these exact words. And that is somehow going to get you right with God. That is temple model thinking. And at the heart of this, and this is really where we're going to be exploring and going into today, it's this subtle thing, and some of you, it's so subtle that you'll accuse me of making a bigger deal of this than I ought, but at the heart of the temple model, it's really all about you. It's all about me. That the temple model is you-centered. Because at the heart of the temple model is a question that might be a good question initially, but it is not a good question eventually. What must I do? What must I do? What must I believe to make things and keep things right between God and me? Because ultimately, my religion, my religious experience is all about me. It's all about making sure that God is fine with me, which makes me the center of my religious experience rather than God. 
For a lot of you, we, we see this reflected in your prayer life. I mean, come on, be honest. Your, your prayer life isn't that much different than the Christmas list that you used to put together for Santa Claus when you were 10 years old. God, I want this. God, I need this. God, help me with this. Me, 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 me. For some of you, it's why you're even sitting in the seat that you're sitting in right now. For some of you, it's why you give. God, did you see that? It's all about making things right with God. That's why some of you serve on teams. Temple thinking gravitates to rules and rituals. Temple model thinking always gravitates towards rules and rituals, which means in turn that you start asking the question, what exactly? Come on, tell me exactly what I got to do. Tell me exactly what I got to believe to make things and keep things right between God and me. And again, this is a great question initially. But eventually, in this whole faith journey, in your entire, you know, kind of spiritual experience here with God, you have to move beyond what's in it for me. Because Jesus would teach us that you believe, if you believe that God is so for you, that he sent his one and his only son to die for you, to pay the penalty for your mistakes, then you are fine. Stop worrying about God. You never have to lay awake at night again wondering, oh my gosh, am I okay with God? God is fine. He said his son for you. Stop worrying about that. But when it's all about us, when it's all about worrying about the rules, okay, did I do this? Okay, did I follow that rule? It's all about the rituals. Okay, I did this in that exact order. Temple thinking always leads to loophole thinking, which in turn leads to a bunch of hypocrites. And it's why a lot of people don't want anything to do with the church. That's why some of you, perhaps, don't really like walking through the doors of a church on a Sunday morning because you watch how people behave on Sunday mornings and it does not match up with what you see Monday through Saturday. And you think to yourself, why the crap would I want to be a part of that little Christian country club? I treat people better than they do. And Jesus, fortunately for us, has invited us to abandon that subtle form of Christianity for something that is so much better. See, the Jesus model is centered on the you beside you. If you're a Republican, it means the you to the left of you. If you're a Democrat, it means the you to the right of you. If you're a racist, it means the you that you want nothing to do with. Jesus went so far as to say it centers on the you that you might even call your enemy. The you that irritates you, the you that frustrates you, the you that even makes you angry. Following Jesus, listen to this, following Jesus means abandoning the you that is all about you to embrace the you that is beside you. That's a lot of yous. Abandoning that you that's all about yourself. How, how can I benefit myself in embracing the people that are around you? And I'm telling you, if you start reading the New Testament, that second half of the Bible with this filter, it will make it come alive in ways that you have never experienced before because throughout the New Testament, you are invited to love others the way your heavenly Father loves you. And how did he go about doing that? He sent his son for you to pay the penalty for your mistakes. That's why Jesus would say things like this. Again, this is Jesus talking. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. There aren't any loopholes there. That's why the Apostle Paul would later say this. The only thing, I mean, we hammered this home a couple of weeks ago. Make sure you go back and listen to a couple of weeks ago. The only thing, the only thing that counts 
is faith expressing itself through love. And just in case you thought he was exaggerating, just in case you thought, okay, there's no way that 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 actually can be true, just verses later, he doubles down on this. He says the entire law, all 613 of them, and he was better at keeping those 613 laws than anyone that ever walked the face of the earth. And he says all of those laws can be summed up with just one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Paul... I don't really know if I agree with that. He's like, okay, well, to each their own. But I wrote like half of the New Testament. And the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. This represents, I'm telling you guys, this represents a complete departure from the temple model. A complete departure. It's not the continuation of something. It's not mixing and matching. It is the complete departure from the temple model. Allow me to illustrate. Do you know why you should tell the truth? Oh, I know that because there's, there's something in the Bible about it. Isn't there like, ah, thou shalt not tell lies, thou shalt not lie. I mean, that's gotta be in there, right? Like, yeah, you shouldn't lie because th- there's a verse in, in, in the book and it says that you shouldn't do it. And if, if God wrote the Bible, then that means that we shouldn't do those things that it tells us not to do in the Bible. No, 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 that's, that's not it. See, see, temple model thinking says, hey, you should not do this or you should do that. You, you shouldn't lie, you should tell the truth because we have a verse for it in the sacred text. The Jesus model says that the reason that you you shouldn't lie, the reason that you should tell the truth is because when you lie, you are hurting the person that you are lying to. See, See, when you lie, you are communicating to that person that what is best for me runs far superior from what is best for you. You're covering yourself at the expense of someone else. See, see, Temple Model says, I won't lie so that God loves me. And Jesus says, no, 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 we're done with that. The Jesus Model says that you should tell the truth because you love the people around you. You, you know why you should be generous? Oh, that's easy. Because I heard this talked about one time, you give God a buck and you'll get 10 back. Is that right? It's like, no, you live in America. You... you You already got your 10. In fact, you were kind of born with 10. Okay, Um, isn't there something about cheerful giving? God loves a cheerful giver, so you better be a cheerful giver. And if you're a cheerful giver, then God will be cheerful back to you. So you kind of like give a cheer, get a cheer, something like that. Like, it's got to be in there. No, no, not it. The reason that you should be generous, and some of you might want to write this down because this is a profound thought. The reason that you should be generous is because when you are generous, the person on the other end of that generosity benefits from you. Let me make that even slower. You know, it's church and Sunday morning here. You should be generous because it helps other people. You know why you, you, you shouldn't talk badly about someone? Oh, yeah, yeah that's, that's easy because there's, there's stuff in the Bible about gossip and you shouldn't gossip about people because, yeah, it's in the Bible and it's written down. You should, just shouldn't talk badly about people because God, you know, he has a verse for that. And he told us that that was important, that you shouldn't gossip with people. You shouldn't talk about people behind their back. No, 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 again, that's not it. It's because when you gossip, it again, it hurts someone else. You are undermining the integrity of that person in the minds of the people that you are gossiping to. You elevate yourself at the expense of someone else. Even if there was not a single verse in the entire B-I-B-L-E, you are all smart enough to know that you shouldn't gossip, that you shouldn't talk badly about people behind their back because it hurts people. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself and gossip or lie or be stingy. 
Guys that are in the room, you know why you shouldn't pressure your girlfriend sexually? Oh, that's easy, because God hates sex. Nope, not it. Uh, because sex, okay, come on, actually, this is really easy. Because sex is for married people. Duh, okay, preacher boy, what else you got for us? Nope, again, not the thing. The reason that you don't do this is because when you pressure someone to do something that they don't want to do and they end up doing it, you create a regret for that person. And Jesus' followers do not create regrets for other people, plain and simple. When somebody thinks about their greatest regret in life, and oftentimes it's related to their sexuality, they should not be thinking about you. When that person later on in life is sitting down with that therapist, sitting down with that counselor, and they're spilling their guts out to that person, talking about their biggest regrets in life, they shouldn't be thinking about you. They shouldn't have stories about you. When that person later on in life does meet the person that they're going to spend the rest of their life with, and then they start to play that whole awkward dance, that whole awkward you know, conversation of, okay, like you tell me and I'll tell you, and depending on how much you give me about your sexual past will dictate how much I tell you about my sexual past, and they're going back and forth, you should not be a part of that story. Because in that moment, when you wanted to pressure her sexually, you were smart enough to recognize, wait a minute, I don't need a verse for this. If I am trying to impose my will on another person, that is not loving my neighbor as myself. That's certainly not loving her as Christ loved me. Let me dig a little bit deeper here just to make sure everybody's uncomfortable. Do you know why? <laughs> Do you know why you shouldn't play fast and loose with your sexuality? Again, that's so easy, Shay, because, because the Bible has all these things to say about sexual immorality and, and debauchery. It's a weird word, but it says stuff about debauchery. You shouldn't debauch, and you shouldn't sexual immorality. I mean, just plain and simple. Again, no. It's because if you do anything to diminish the sexual experience of another person later, you have sinned against that person. And Jesus' followers do not sin against other people. All you people that are single in the room that are not married yet. Intimacy, make sure you hear me on this. Intimacy is not fueled by experience. Intimacy is fueled by exclusivity. Well, what if I'm not good at it? You'll figure it out. It's really not all that complicated. And even though, even though you might heal from those experiences, he or she might not. You have damaged him. You have damaged her. And Jesus' followers do not damage other people. <laughs> but Shay, you prude pastor, what if it's consensual? What do you got to say there? You got me. I don't know where to go. What if my little niece, I have a nine-year-old niece named Avery. What if she called me up one day and she's like, hey, Shay, I just want to let you know that there's something going down at recess tomorrow. Uh, me and my friends, we, we found some butter knives and we're going to go get them at recess and poke and gouge each other's eyes out. But don't worry, it's consensual. Oh my goodness, Avery, I'm so glad you told me that. I was really worried about the whole gouging thing until you told me it was consensual. Yeah, that, all good then. Give me a call. Let me know if you need any help. No, I would go, Avery, you're only nine, but you know better. You don't do things that hurt you. You don't do things that hurt other people, whether it's consensual or not. And come on, listen to this. You don't need a verse for every situation in life. You don't create regrets for other people. You don't hurt other people. You know what's good for you. 
You know what's good for others. You don't need a verse for that. Stop playing stupid with God. You don't need anything beyond love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the point. The New Testament imperatives are examples of how to demonstrate your love for God by, read that with me, by loving others. You demonstrate your love for God by loving others. The Bible was never meant to be this end-all, be-all list. It's just a bunch of examples. In fact, Jesus would teach, and later on, Paul would reinforce. And I'm telling you, when he said this stuff, it was a big deal. Because again, he was better at following those 613 laws than anyone. And he said the entire law, the entire Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, all one and the same, and the entire New Testament, they hang on these two imperatives, love God and love your neighbor. That's it. Love God and love your neighbor. Everything else are examples. Everything else is commentary. Everything else is application of loving God and loving the people around you. Now, as we wrap kind of things up here this morning, this, this is really, really important. Some of you, you haven't really appreciated this series. I get your emails and I see the messages on, on Facebook. We, we see these things because you feel like, and I understand this, you feel like we are reducing Christianity basically to just like this big love fest. It's essentially, you know, just like the Christian version of Woodstock. And we are somehow discounting scripture. And and listen, if you've went there mentally, I, I totally, totally get this. But please hear me on this. The Jesus model, the Jesus model is far less complicated. And intentionally so. But it is far more demanding. Do not forget that at the epicenter of the Christian faith is a man who is tortured beaten and killed on a wooden cross, covered in his own blood, covered in in other people's saliva. That's how far this goes. Much simpler, but far more demanding. Now, here's how I know that. In fact, those of you that, that grew up going to church, I think you'll be able to understand this as well. It's really, really easy to find a place and to, uh, to find a place to hide in the temple model. There are always loopholes within the temple model. Well, see, what, what the writer actually meant here, well, I heard that preached on one time, and I don't think that they actually meant that. Okay, they, they, they weren't being literal in this instance. What you actually do here, and if you twist this word, and you get the Greek, and you get the Aramaic, and you switch it around, okay, this is actually what it means here. No, you, you don't have to do that. That's fine. Just go to confession, and you'll be good. No, 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 that's fine. Like, I don't know. Like, just go tell somebody about it, and you'll be good. There is always loopholes within the temple model, but good luck finding a loophole. Good luck finding a place to hide within the new that Jesus introduced into the world. Good luck finding a loophole with this. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Well, how did you love me? Oh yeah, you died for me. And let's be honest, in virtually every situation that we encounter life, we know the answer to the question, what does love require of me? We don't always like the answer to that question, but we know the answer to it. What does love require of me? No loopholes, no workarounds, less complicated, but so much more demanding. And this is the essence of following Jesus. And as soon as you are tempted to think, well, this is easy. Remember, the answer to this question cost our heavenly father his son. The answer to this question 
cost Jesus his life. Now, last thing I want to address here before we wrap up. If you're thinking, and again, this, this might be a thought circling in your head or maybe somebody next to you is thinking it. If you're thinking, okay, well, shape, this kind of seems like we're kind of making Christianity all about us. It, it seems like, you know, it's, it's just about people. And don't we kind of gather here on Sunday mornings for, for God? <laughs> Isn't that kind of like the, the whole purpose behind this for, for the glory of God? I want to show you something. This is Jesus's, some of his final words when he was here on earth. We find this in, in Matthew's gospel account. Gospel is just a fancy way of, of saying Jesus's life, his death, and his resurrection. It's the four books that, that again document his time when he was here on earth. And in Matthew's account, so of Jesus's final words to his disciples, he lets this come flying out of his mouth. He says, when the Son of Man, Son of Man was this title that he used for himself very frequently. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and they love talking about the glory of things in heaven and debating these subjects. So already, I mean, the whole crowd would have been riveted. They're like, okay, glory. And all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, that kind of illustration doesn't really like, you know, hit home for us. But again, back then when they were such an agriculturally driven society, I mean, they were like, okay, they're tracking with them. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed. And they're like, yes, we're blessed. By my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And then he goes down this rabbit trail, which almost immediately the disciples would have been very confused. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Peter, did you ever give him something to eat? No. I mean, kind of. I gave him like a Jolly Rancher that one time. I, oh, maybe that's what he's talking about. Okay. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. Like, we never gave him anything to drink. The guy just produced junk out of thin air. He wanted something to drink. He just kind of seemed hydrated. Okay. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Jesus, you never seemed like a stranger. In fact, you kind of called us out of the blue and like, we were just kind of like your boys from like day one. Like, what in the heck are you talking about? This is very confusing. I needed clothes and you clothed me. Again, they're looking at each other like, James, did you ever give him any clothes? He's like, no, I think he might have taken something out of my closet one time, but I didn't even give it to him. I was sick and you looked after me. They're like, you have never been sick. In fact, it's kind of unbelievable. You spend time around sick people all the time and you never get sick. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Do you guys remember him going to jail? No. He definitely didn't go to jail. Then the righteous will answer him. And, and they were so glad because they would have been so scared to ask this question, so nervous because, like, again, they always, they always got caught in these parables and these riddles and they had no idea. And so he asked the question that's all on their minds. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And they're all going, yeah, seriously. When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you because we don't remember that? Then it says the king will reply. And again, he's talking about himself. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Whatever you did for the people around you, you did it, you did it for me. For those of you that, again, have been part of this church thing for a while, maybe you grew up in a Christian home, I want you right now to actually do this. I want you to think back to, to the, maybe the time in your life where you felt closest to God, where you felt closer to God maybe than any other point in your life. 
Maybe it was on a Sunday morning at a church, and you know, you're raising your hands. It just felt like, oh my gosh, this is such a good moment. Maybe, maybe it was at camp. You know, you're sitting around a campfire, and it just like it finally clicked. You know, maybe for you, it was just in some quiet time that you were spending with God, and you're like, oh my goodness, I get it now. Like, it just, you felt closer to God than ever. For me, a lot of those times usually come when I'm driving in the car, and I'm just like belting it out to God in some worship song, and I start crying, and I just like feel overwhelmed. Think about that moment, okay? And, and when you do, try to answer this question. Who was that for? The, the, those moments when you felt closer to God than you ever have in your life, who were those moments for? They were for you. Now, I don't want to discount that at all. In fact, I cherish those, those intimate times that I have had with God. There's certainly nothing wrong with, the, with those times. But the essence of following Jesus ain't about you. It's about the yous around you. See, the Jesus model centers on the you beside you. In fact, your devotion to God is illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by your love for others. Did, did I mention that if you mistreat one of my kids, that all the singing and all the praising and all the giving, all the sucking up in the world won't make up for it? That the best way to honor me doesn't actually have anything to do with me? that the most honoring thing that you could do for me would be to do something for one of my kids. It's almost like, it's almost like whatever you do for one of them, it's like you're doing it for me. What if it's that simple? What, what if it is as simple as what does love require of me? If, if in every situation, Rather than reacting how our body wants us to react, than our flesh, than our minds tell us to react, we, are, we pause and we ask the question, what does love require of me? Because the Apostle Paul would teach, and James would teach, the brother of Jesus, and Peter would teach, and so on and so forth, and Jesus would teach and tell us, in fact, he would show us that the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. I'm telling you, that has the power to transform your marriage. That has the power to transform families. If we got this right, it would change this community. If the people that call themselves Jesus followers got back to the basics of what Christianity was actually supposed to be about, the thing that made it an unstoppable force in the first and the second and the third and the fourth centuries, if we got that back, it would change our world. If at every turn we asked ourselves, what does love require of me? Because Jesus would teach us and Paul would teach us that the only thing that matters, the only thing that counts is how you treat the people around you.